Good morning and welcome to church. I'm Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here at EV. And what a week it's been, hasn't it? A week of um, highlights for some parts, uh, scariness as we think through realities of viruses hitting us uh, and coming to our land, borders shut. And then sadness as we reflect on the actions of humanity, as you look over what happened a year ago today, and we see the deaths of 51 people uh, because of some person's view. It's a world that kind of doesn't make sense. So as we, as we think through this morning, how do we make sense of this world? The great news is we have God's Word. We have God speaking into our lives One of the things I come across most often when I'm chatting to people around Christianity and Jesus is this this blocker that people have that if Jesus just turned up, if Jesus was still here today, then I'd believe in him. But as I look at the world around me, it just doesn't make sense. I see the brokenness. I see the pain. If Jesus was just here, then life would be better. But what we're going to see this morning is Jesus say that life is better without him than with him. So why don't we pray together? Father God, as we come to your word now, as we've just heard it read, we ask that as you speak to us and outline for us who your spirit is and how he comforts us, we ask that by your spirit you'd help us to see clearly Jesus and the great joy it is to know him amidst a world of turmoil and pain. We pray this in his name. Amen. Would your life be better off without Jesus? It's a controversial line, but I want to put it to you this morning that Jesus says, yes, at least physically. Come with me. Uh, Don't worry, we'll explain it. If it's feeling a bit like, oh, what have I walked into? Uh, John chapter 16, verse 7 says this. Jesus says, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Jesus is spending his his last waking hours before his death, before he goes to the cross with his disciples, prepping them to live in the world where he has died and then risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's just told his disciples again that he's about to leave them, about to go away to the one who sent him, to to the Father. Now, the the narrative doesn't make much of it, but Jesus tells us the disciples' response. Look at verse 6. Because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has filled your heart. These were Jesus' closest friends and followers. They'd been alongside him for the last three years, watching his miracles, hearing his words. They'd shared their very lives with him. They'd given up their lives for him. And now he's telling them he's going away. He was leaving them in this hour at this point, just after he's told them that the world will hate them. You're like, thanks, and you're leaving. You get why their hearts were filled with sorrow. Have you ever had one of those moments where something that you really wanted to happen, where you really thought would happen, was shown to be an impossibility? It's happened with me a number of times on exam results. Something that I thought would happen, that I'd get a higher mark than I did, that I really wanted to happen, that I'd get a higher mark than I deserved, (laughs) didn't happen. Uh, I remember the final exam in my last year of high school. And basically, you got an entrance ranking for university, to be able to get into university. And in those days, you couldn't really check on the internet. 
They had dial-up modems then. And, um, and so what you had to do was to ring up the hotline and hear over the phone what mark you'd get, gotten. It was some computerized voice. And I'm ringing up going, okay, I won't start with 100 because only like two people in the whole of the, the state get 100. So I'm, I'm out there. So I'm happy with the first number being like a nine. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then it said seven. And I'm like, oh, that's way lower than I wanted it to be. And I remember that feeling like, why? Why didn't I get what I didn't deserve? <laughs> the answer is probably because I didn't study much at all during high school. And it was a great mark because the rest of the numbers were all high. And it got me into university and that was fine. But I remember that sinking feeling of going, ah, oh, I really wanted something else to happen. Now imagine, uh, in a, that's just a small sense of what the disciples are feeling that day. A sense of disappointment as Jesus says he's leaving to his father. Why can't you stay? Why are we left behind? What are we going to do at this moment? But Jesus says to his disciples, you are better off that I go. You are better off that I go. How is that possible? I know I'd be standing there going, what? No, no, I'm not. If you are God the Son, if you are here, I've seen what you've done. I've heard what you've said. I want you beside me. I don't want you going somewhere else. I mean, every sense that I'd want him to stay. How could it possibly be better that Jesus goes than he stays? Well, verse 7 of chapter 16, Jesus says, It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's the thing we need to get a sense of. We need to understand the gravity of what Jesus is saying. There is something better, something more beneficial, something more important than God the Son staying on earth and never dying and never rising. There is something better that you and I experience than walking the earth with Jesus, than seeing his miracles first person, than hearing his words first person. Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go, for our benefit. Now, we know what he's about to do. He's told us he's going to die in our place. He will rise again. He will defeat Satan. He'll, he'll pay the penalty for sin. He'll overcome death. So much needs to happen. And, and you get a sense of how great those things are. And if Jesus didn't go to his death and die in our place, we'd have no forgiveness. But Jesus is saying that there's something else as well, or perhaps someone else. Someone more beneficial for us. What could be more beneficial than Jesus' death in our place? Than Jesus remaining here with us? It's this. Understanding that Jesus' death was for us. You see, understanding who Jesus is and what he has come to do can only happen if the counsellor comes. If God helps us to get the gravity of who Jesus is and what he's done. The helper, the advocate, that's what that word counsellor means there. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that until he dies on the cross and rises and ascends to the right-hand side of his Father in heaven, the Spirit cannot come. We will not understand the gravity of who he is and what he has done. That will not be applied to our hearts, nor will we be able to trust him and have life. Now, it's not that the, the Spirit and the Son aren't friends. They can't be at earth together at the same time as like a family feud. Like, no, I can't have him here. I want him here. And that's not the reason. It's that the role of the Spirit has something explicitly tied to what Jesus' role is. 
In other words, there's no point the Spirit coming until Jesus has done what he came to do. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit has, has little use for us today. There'd be no point in him coming. It, it kind of, it's kind of like a wedding. Imagine a wedding where the bride turned up, but there was no groom. Like, what's the point of that wedding? Why didn't you just stay at home? You can't really have a wedding because the whole purpose is for the two to kind of become one and in a ceremony type of way. In the same way, what's the, what's the point of the Spirit coming if the focus of his ministry has not yet been done? And until Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit has no events to point people to, no work to remind people of, no application of Jesus' words and work to the lives of the people. So come with me, have a look at point number two, at the promise of the Spirit. Jesus had already told them about the coming of the Spirit. We've heard it a number of times throughout John. Here it is in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't know him or doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Or uh, John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. We've already heard Jesus promise that, that the Father would send God the Spirit, this counselor, the one who would be with them and would teach them. I want you to notice for a moment that the Spirit is sent from the Father. Did you see that in those two verses? The Father will send in my name. He is sent from the Father to be with the disciples forever. But not only is he sent from the Father, what we find out this week is he's also sent from the Son. Have a look at this. Verse 26, when the counselor comes... The one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. See, the Son sends the Spirit as well. The Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. It is the Father and the Son who together send the Spirit. And there's good reason for that. That we're seeing God in the persons of the Father and Son and Spirit work together. And they, the Father and Son send the Spirit to finish the work that God is doing, to apply the work that the Son has done, the plan that the Father has set before all creation, in each and every action of each person of the Trinity. The other two persons are involved. The Father sent the Son. The Son did all the work the Father had given him to do. Then the Son goes to the right-hand side of the Father, with all authority in heaven and in earth, and both the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply that work. Not just the Father's work, but everything the Son had achieved as well. So then, what is the role of the Spirit? What does He do? What is He to do for those who are here that is better than Jesus Himself in person walking the earth? Well, there's a number of points. I think I've got five. And we'll spend our time working through these from this passage because we see that the Spirit was sent to teach. The Spirit was sent to teach. Look at verse 26 of chapter 14. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So he will teach the disciples all things. 
And when you first read that, you kind of go, well, does that really mean everything? Like, will he teach me how to make electric motors and how to create kind of vaccines that, that, that prevent against virus kind of spreading? Does it mean he'll give us the cure for cancer and next week's lotto numbers? Like, when he says all things, does that mean he'll give us everything? No, the next kind of phrase modifies what he's saying. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. He's reminding the disciples of everything he taught. God the Son has come to earth. And he's made himself known. And the role of the Spirit is to take what he has said and done and remind these disciples of its implications and of of what that means so they can then therefore teach the rest of the world. It's not that there's more revealing for God to do than Jesus' word and works. It's not like there's way more in the story to happen. God the Son has come to earth. In Jesus, we have the revelation of God fully and completely. What the Spirit does is apply what Jesus has said to his disciples and allow the disciples to teach the world. When the Spirit comes, they'll remember what he said and the Spirit will apply it to them and to the world they live in. That's how he teaches us today through the testimony of the disciples. The Spirit was sent to teach the disciples all that Jesus said and did to to remind them of that, to bring it together in God's overarching plan. He was also sent, number B, the next one, to testify. He sent to teach and sent to testify. Look at verse 26. When the counselor comes, the one I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Testimony or witnessing is really what happens when when you recount what, what has gone on. Uh, If you're a witness, uh, an eyewitness, you're someone who's seen some events and then you get to testify about them. You get to say, yes, this is what I saw. This is what went on. And what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit will testify to the disciples, will remind them, will will, will push them forward by teaching them the implications of who Jesus is and what he's done. But not just in some sense of knowledge where you just know what went on experientially bring these events to mind, subjectively, the words and events of Jesus to see their significance. The Gospels, the, the, the letters of the New Testament, they're all part of the testifying work of the Spirit, bringing to mind these events for the disciples and writing down their implications for us as they testify. As we hear the Word of God, as we read the Scriptures, God brings to mind the word and works of Jesus. And the Spirit testifies to us not only what He said, but a subjective kind of confidence based on the objective work of Jesus. Let me try and illustrate that a little. Uh, A number of years ago, a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright, who who writes some really good stuff and some things that are a little more questionable, but he wrote a book on the resurrection called Resurrection and the Son of God. It's a fantastic book. It's super thick. That doesn't make it a good book. I think good books are normally thin. Uh, But it's a really helpful explanation of Jesus rising from the dead. It goes through the the historical backgrounds, the, the evidence that exists in the Scriptures to say, actually, from an objective point of view, the best evidence we have of Jesus and what happened was that he actually rose. He gives this book to his um, friend who's a philosophy professor at Oxford University. 
Uh, he, he gives it to him to read and, and comment on and give feedback to. And the philosophy professor comes back to him and says, look, this is an excellent defense of the resurrection of Jesus. It's brilliant. Uh, your argument is really strong. I just choose to believe that there is another explanation. I don't know what it is. I just choose to believe there is one. I don't agree that this is it. Now, here you're seeing someone who's seen the objective evidence. It's not proof that Jesus rose from the dead, but evidence that he rose from the dead. He's seen the accounts from the first century. He's seen the history, the prophecy foretelling what would happen. He's seen all that. However, subjectively, it just, he's not experienced that those objective events mean what the disciples say they mean, what the Spirit testifies they mean. He's not experiencing the reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he is the Son of God. I can see all of the information, but it doesn't change the way he, he approaches and trusts and sees. That work is the work of the Spirit of God. Not just kind of taking something that doesn't make sense and going, oh, suddenly it makes sense, but helping us to get out of the way of our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. To actually for ourselves go, if Jesus did rise from the dead, that changes everything. Another friend of mine, um, I was chatting to about Christianity and over a number of months he'd been investigating the, the claims of Christianity. Uh, looking at what the Bible said and he kind of came to the conclusion that looking at all the evidence, it seemed pretty clear that this seems like the most probable way forward. But it wasn't until a couple of days later that he rang me up and he said, I just woke up this morning going, you know what, this is my only hope, Jesus is my God. I need to trust him. He had known the evidence, but he hadn't experienced the subjective reality that that evidence changed his life. If Jesus didn't die and rise again and send the Spirit, we'd be able to see the evidence. But no person in the room would trust him. No person in the room would say, yes, you are my king. I recognize who you are. Finally, I see you are the king and creator of all, and I'm going to serve you with my life. That is the role of the Spirit. That is what He does. People talk about that there are people in this world that are great evangelists, that tell people about Jesus. But here we see that the Spirit of God is the real evangelist. He is the one who testifies. But not just the Spirit. The disciples testify as well. Look at verse 27. You also will testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit testifies to the disciples who testify to the world. That's exactly why so many of us sit here today. Why so many of us have placed our lives, our eternal destinies, eternity into the hands of Jesus because of the testimony of the disciples into the world as they shared the news of Jesus, just like our missionary partners are doing, like Sam and Chen Chen in Taiwan and the Dunbars in Cambodia. And all the other missionaries across the world. And as, as you share the news of Jesus to those, your neighbors and your colleagues and your friends and your family, it is the message of Jesus that is going out and the role of the Spirit to help people to understand and apply that to their lives. The Spirit testifies to the disciples and enables them to testify to the world. And we get to share in their testimony. But that's not all the Spirit does. The third thing Jesus tells us that He sent the Spirit to do is to convict. The Spirit has been sent to convict. Look at verse 8 of chapter 16. When He comes, 
He will convict the world about sin, righteousness and judgment. See, left to our own, we don't think that we're sick as a humanity. This whole coronavirus, if it's shown us anything, it's the terrible consequences of thinking you are fine when you're not. What makes it so dangerous is that you can, you can carry this virus but have no idea it's in you for 14 days, lying undetected in your system. Friends, we have a greater virus, all of us within us. And that virus is our rebellion against God. And it lies undetected for so many. Oh, we can see its effects. Sometimes we're way better off seeing it in others than ourselves. But you see the effects of our own rebelliousness, selfishness, immorality, murder, lying. They, they raise their ugly heads to the surface all too often. But we're so deluded in the way we think that we go, oh, these things are just normal. It's part of being human. It's part of our culture. It's part of our world. It astounds me that so many rational, logical, clear-minded people can, in this past week, in a bit, vote that a child that was being aborted, that came out still alive, should not be given life-supporting care. I just don't get that. There's a child now, even by the legal definition that is in the world, because it has been born, that is alive, and our politicians voted that that should not be given life-giving care? What is wrong with us? Friends, we have a virus and we don't know it. We need to be convicted of our sinfulness. And that, says Jesus, is the role of the Spirit to help us to see how broken we are. Have you ever had that experience of being in a, in a dark room? You know, you've been in it for a while and your eyes have adjusted, so you can kind of see that the shadows and shapes and navigate your way hopefully without tripping over toys, to wherever you need to go. And you've been in a dark room, you kind of see what's there. You can see outlines and, and shadows. But then someone turns the light on and you're like, whoa! <laughs> and it hurts your eyes and you're like, what is going on? And suddenly you see everything super clearly and you're like, it's too much to turn the light off. <laughs> I want to go back to the dark. Well, that is the experience of our morality in our lives as the Spirit steps into our world. As He turns the light on to show what we are really like. To see the things that were hidden by the shadows that are now brought to light. And we see what our own hearts are capable of without the Word of God. It's interesting, that's exactly what Jesus did. As He steps onto the world stage, John describes Him in this way, as a light that shines in the darkness. The true light, he says in chapter 1, verse 7, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus stepped onto the world stage to show what right living was and is. To show what perfection is. And everyone hated him because he was so good, so right. Listen to Jesus' explanation of his role while he was on earth. That's John 3, verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works might be shown to be accomplished by God. Now, coming to the light, who is Jesus, accepting him as the king and ruler in our lives can only happen through the role of the Spirit and the Spirit convicting us of our sin. And so as Jesus departs, having died in our place and risen again, he will send, he says to his disciples, the Spirit into the world to continue to do what He did. Not a new work, but a continuation to convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. 
Should we fight the kind of laws that are going in place to protect the unborn and the born? Absolutely we should. But in the end, laws aren't going to solve it. In the end, what the world needs is the news of Jesus. What the world needs is the Spirit to come and convict and shape and mold people to show us our sinfulness, to show us our brokenness. When was the last time you asked God to show you more of your brokenness so that you might revel more in His goodness and mercy? This world has rejected Jesus as its King. That's why the world hates Him. That's why it hates His followers. But what God the Spirit does is show us our sinfulness, convict us of our natural rejection of Jesus, and bring us to Him as our King. He convicts in terms of righteousness as well, showing how unrighteous we are. It's a kind of odd phrase, but I think the best way to read it is He convicts in terms of righteousness, inverted commas. We look at our works and we think we're righteous. Look how good we are. We're doing such good work. But really, it's just offensive to God. Isaiah wrote something like this in Isaiah 64. All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts, our righteousness, are like a polluted garment. Now, literally, Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are like a menstrual cloth. That's literally what he says. They're repulsive to God, offensive to Him. We go, look at what I've done, and God says, ah, You rebellious people, you are so self-centered and self-focused, you reject my son, you live your own way, and that is me, and that is you. Left to our own, that is what we are like. Our righteousness is no righteousness at all. And it's the Spirit of God who helps us, allows us, counsels us to see that. He convicts us of our unrighteousness and the judgment that we deserve the judgment that as we stand before the true and living God, we don't, deserve to be, we don't deserve to be declared right in His sight. We don't deserve to, to even have life. We've said to the God who's given life, we want nothing to do with you. We want to live our way without you. The role of a spirit is to convict us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Because we can't understand the truth of what Jesus says apart from the work of His Spirit. But the fact that Jesus will send His Spirit into the world and to, to those who trust in Him means we can see our sinfulness. We can see our need. We can come to our Maker and be clean. The Spirit plays a role that's kind of like the difference between someone who hears words and then does nothing about them and someone who hears the same words and is able to have a response. An illustration might be, imagine someone um, has, a, has a problem, they feel something weird in their chest, something around the heart area, you know it's not good in the heart area when it's something not feeling right there. And so they go to the doctor and the doctor says, actually, you need a heart transplant. Your heart's just full of fat, just all gummed up. It's like kind of sucking and blowing, Nothing, nothing's working well. I don't know if that's the technical term, doctors can correct me later. But you go at that point, oh well, I don't care. Oh, I'm living life. I love my like fried chicken. I love the fat. You know, the fat's good. I'm just going to keep eating it because I've heard, I've understood what you've said. My heart's stuffed, but it has not meant anything to me. I'm not going to change. I'm just going to keep marching on, oblivious into death. And that's where we end up. Or someone who hears what the doctor has to say and understands my heart is stuffed. 
It needs to be ripped out and I need a new one. And then looks to the doctor and says, what will I do? And the doctor says, I'll give you mine. That person suddenly goes, what? They understand the depth of what is happening before them, of their own need for a new heart and for the offer of a new one. Well, from Jesus, that's what this illustration is pointing us to. The Spirit helps us to see, not only understand that we need His help, but recognize that without Him we are dead in our sin and unrighteousness and deserving of judgment. But the Spirit helps us to see that not only are we dead, but that Jesus died for us. He offered His whole life for us. If you're here today checking out the things of God, trying to work out who this Jesus is and whether Christianity is worth kind of exploring more, can I show you what Jesus has done? He would come and die in your place. He would figuratively swap his heart for yours and say, I will take the penalty that you deserve so that you can be forgiven, so that you can stand before God forever, so that you can have life that does not end. There's no better promise. There's no better hope than what he holds out. And it's my prayer that the Spirit shows you that. Will that be your prayer? Why don't today you pray to God, you ask him, Lord, please reveal yourself to me. Please show me what you have done. Because he promises that those who seek, he will find, he will reveal himself to you. The role of the Spirit is to convict us of our sin and the judgment that is deserved. And the role of a spirit then is to bring us to his truth. That's uh, number four, sent to guide. The role of a spirit is to guide us into truth. Now, so often people come along and hear the role of the spirit here and think, oh, this is, this is the great bit, right? This is where he's going to tell me what to do, how to do it. I can go to the spirit and he'll tell me how I can kind of be a better person and um, what, what shares I should invest in. Uh, and we kind of have all these things that the Spirit will tell us. He'll, he'll give me amazing insight into someone's life and I'll be able to understand them. We keep jumping into this thinking he's promising some sort of crystal ball, a genie in a bottle. How does the Spirit guide? You know, when I get a, some sort of urge to, to speak to a stranger or to ask someone to marry me, as long as I'm not married, maybe you're not. <laughs> or, or some sort of urge to apply for this job or to say something special to someone else, is that the Spirit guiding me? Is that what Jesus is saying he will send to God? Come with me. Have a look. John 16, verse 12. He says to the disciples, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformer John Calvin, who was known as the theologian of the Spirit, uh, the theologian who had a great understanding of the role of the Spirit, saw a, a massive mistake being made in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church saw this passage as meaning that the Spirit would lead the church, the Pope and its bishops, into new truths. Truths that might be different to what Jesus said or additional to what Jesus said, that the, the church had authority over Scripture. Because the church had the Spirit of God and the Pope could therefore declare things that was God guiding by His Spirit through the church into the ways of the future. The same mistake was made by the Muslims with the Quran. For in the Quran, they see the Quran as an additional word from God. Another testimony uh, to the prophet Muhammad 
who can then speak into the world and say, this is how we need to take this true God's faith into the world around us. It's the same mistake many of us can fall into today when we believe the Spirit has words for us that are over and above and in addition to the teaching of Jesus. That there's something more than Jesus. Yeah, Jesus came and lived and died and said some stuff to some people 2,000 years ago. But today he's got a word for you. You know, a powerful word, a word that will really help you live life more than God the Son said before, but something amazingly new today. Oh, yes, it's better that Jesus went and the Spirit came. But the Spirit is not going to say anything that is independent of Jesus because it's the Father and the Son that send the Spirit. He's not coming to set up a different ministry to Jesus. He's not coming to draw attention to himself or away from Jesus. The Spirit is always focused on Jesus because his role is to show the greatness of him. How all-encompassing and truthful Jesus is. That he's all that we need and in him and through his words we have all we need for life. When we make the mistake of thinking that God is first and foremost about me, we start to think, well, God needs to, wants to help me have a good life. And he wants to speak to me today and help me decide what brand TV I should get. Help me decide what job I should take. Help me decide these things. And I'm waiting for a word from God by his spirit to lead me into the future because he promises that. We fall into the trap that, that my questions are the ones God should answer about my hopes and expectations, about my dreams and life situations. But friends, when we do that, we forget that all of human history is about Jesus. All of this world exists by him, through him, because of him and for him. It's all about him. And we place ourselves in the center and think that God has got to tell me some great news. We miss what he's actually on about. We miss the majesty of God the Son become flesh. That he died in our place, that he rose again. Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. It's still what Jesus is saying. And at that point, he's speaking to his disciples. The ones he'll commission to go and make disciples, making disciples of all the earth in Matthew 28. The ones whose testimony that we listen to in the scriptures as the spirit convicts us of the truth and of our sinfulness. He's making this promise to the disciples. And when the disciples spoke, they spoke the word of God. But only after the Spirit came. Do you remember what the disciples were like before the Spirit came? They were seeing uh, the events of Jesus and not really getting it. Kind of didn't understand. Peter scratching his head going like, I don't know what's going on with Moses and whoever this other guy is. And I'm going to build a tent for him. And he's got no idea what's going on. Uh, at one point, uh, Jesus, Peter says to, to Jesus, yes, you're the Messiah. And he says, well, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And they have this fight. You're like, Peter, you just said he's God's promised king. Now you're telling him that he shouldn't die? Like, who are you? You don't get it. Well, John picks up this thread in a number of points and shows us that the Spirit coming is first and foremost for the disciples to be able to understand what they saw and then communicate. Look at John 2, 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the statement Jesus had made. That happened at the start of John's Gospel, but they only understood what it meant after Jesus rose from the dead and that they'd been given the Spirit. Or John 7, 39. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit hadn't come yet, so they didn't kind of get it. They didn't understand what he was about to do. John 12, verse 16. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The Spirit comes to remind the disciples, to guide them and speak the truth of all that Jesus taught them so you and I might have the Word of God today. Friends, if you've got the Word of God open, you have God speaking to you. His Spirit promises that that Word is not dead, but living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, convicting us of our sin, comforting us of the great hope of what He has done because God gave the Spirit to His disciples and now gives His Spirit to us to understand it was the disciples. It was, to the, it was to the disciples that the Spirit joined the dots. It was to the disciples that he declared what was to come, and that's what we have in the, in the Scriptures. That's why the early churches, when they had these creeds of what they believed, said, we believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, and apostolic church. We believe in a church that is of the apostles, that is the message they sent out. We don't get new revelation today. Thank God there's no book of Rowan. Imagine that. Ugh. Yeah. Or no, no book of John Piper or Spurgeon or Calvin. Not, not biblical books. They're takes on, on, on what the apostles said as they wrote scripture. There's no book of Furtick or Houston or Olstein or Tamaki. Right? There's no these people saying this is definitely what God has said to us. No, the word we believe is the word the apostles wrote down, the message they passed on, and those that knew them wrote down. And, were received as authoritative. That's what we call Scripture. We don't get to write Scripture today because someone had a dream or a vision. No, the Spirit's role was to point us back to what Jesus said that was explained to the apostles and written down for us. And the Spirit's role was to take that message and apply it to our hearts and lives and convict us and shape us and mould us. For us today, He guides us to hear the truth the disciples spoke. Now, the temptation is to say, but oh, you know, but I want a better guidance today. I want guidance in, in stuff that really matters. <laughs> the Spirit is saying, all that matters is Jesus. You've not gotten who He is and what He's done. That our world needs to come to Him. He's better than the cure for cancer. He's life forever. He's the King that sustains your heartbeat and your breath right now. He's the one that will come back and rule forever. What is the truth the Spirit leads us into? Well, Jesus in John 14, 6 just told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. And again, the Spirit points out that reality. When we move to think that the Spirit guides us into menial and minute, minute things of life, we devalue the centrality and the focus of Jesus. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus has incredible implications for all the small things of my life, for how I make decisions and what I do with my time, but that's because I understand who He is and what we are here for, for serving Him, for living for Him. Spirit's role is to captivate us by Jesus, that we might be serving Him with our whole lives. And that's where we see the last area in this section of why the Spirit was sent. The Spirit was sent... To glorify. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. 
this work of what Jesus is doing here, what the Spirit is doing, is taking the work of Jesus. It's not a completely new activity of the Spirit. He's not going, okay, um, the Spirit's got two roles. One is to proclaim and teach and guide people into the truth. And there's this unrelated role over here to glorify Jesus. And the two are together. It's saying we need to glorify God by recognizing that Jesus is the center. The activity of, dis- of guiding the disciples into all truth is to guide them into the glorious Lord Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The guiding activity of, of pointing us to Jesus will glorify Jesus as well. We-, we will show his greatness. Not in some kind of magic sense where we go, oh, I told you this would happen. The Spirit told me to tell you that would happen. Now it happened, so Jesus looks great. No, not like that. By saying, have you seen Jesus? He is your king. He died for you. He rose again. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. Is he your king? That makes Jesus look good. By showing the world around us the all-encompassing greatness of him and being captured and captivated by him. Jesus isn't embarrassed to say that the Spirit has come to glorify me. Not me, but Jesus. Jesus says the Spirit has come to glorify me. The death and resurrection is the pinnacle of all creation and and human history. Is that what you are focused on? Because that's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit comes to take what Jesus declares to his disciples. The Spirit comes not to add to his message, but to apply that message. He comes not when his own authority, from his own self, with his own message. But he takes what Jesus has said and done and, and declares it to the disciples and teaches them. And then through that word, shapes us by his spirit. Not in a different message or an additional message, but in the message Jesus has spoken, glorifying him. If you go back over those five headings of what Jesus has come to do, you could just add to the end of them, Jesus. He's been sent to teach us about Jesus. He's been sent to testify about Jesus. He has been sent to convict us about Jesus' righteousness and our sinfulness. He has been sent to guide us into trusting Jesus. He's been sent to glorify Jesus. It is all about him. So as we sit here today, friends, it's my hope that you will see it is far better for us living now to have the Spirit of God than Jesus still with us if he hadn't died and risen again. Because by the Spirit, we can recognize our own sinfulness and Jesus' goodness, and we can live for him, obeying him, because God is with us. The question is, are you listening to God by his word and through his spirit? Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are so thankful. And it sounds weird to say, but that Jesus left. That he experienced death on a cross in our place. So that our sins could be paid for. So that his name could be held high and that life forever would be offered We ask that by your spirit, you would show us more of yourself, more of Jesus. We long to see more of who he is and what he has done as we open up your scriptures, as we understand and and hear his word. Shape us into the likeness of your son. Cut away our sin and complacency. May your spirit subjectively help us to be grounded in the hope we have so that we might live out boldness 
to the world around us. We might proclaim the message that the apostles have passed on to us. Father God, we ask today that your spirit would shape us and send us out into your world for your glory, no matter what happens. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.